Our great God, thank you for your mercies today that we can come before a holy God. Uh, thank you for our brother Steve uh, reminding us that you are holy. And when we come, we can't stand before you. When we come, we can't hide. If we run, there's no getting away. There's no way to hide from the holy God except in the provision of holiness that that holy God gives. And we thank you for the blood that covers us. And we praise you that you've made a way and that you take away our fear and our shame when we come. Lord, we ask this morning, fortify us afresh in your truth. Heal the wounds that we bear from this week. Speak to our hearts as we gather here together to honor your name. And we give you this time and attention wherever we might be in this moment today. We ask you to be glorified. This is what we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come for the last time this morning to this little letter, 1 Peter. For the last time this morning to these elect, scattered, suffering, hope-filled, persecuted, exiled, grace-infused, spirit-empowered people to whom Peter writes. We've learned how in a day of hardship that they have the privilege in that generation to glorify God. They, they have the position of being tools in His mighty hand, no matter what their persecutions and their op oppositions may be. And so it is with the people of God down through the ages and across the continents and here with us as well today. So how do you close such a letter? Well, with a summary, a greeting, and a final exhortation, as Peter does. Pick up with me, 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peter comes to the end of this letter, which could affectionately otherwise be called postcards from Babylon. And it's a fitting conclusion to remind us the context in which he writes and even the need which those believers had who, who received this first and which we as well have today, postcards from Babylon. Well, we'll get around to that in a second. First, this morning, we see the summary, which is this, nourish your, nourish your soul on the true grace of God. Nourish your soul. Peter will exhort them one last time on the true grace of God. And so we have here in 12, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And you see, it's here that uh, Peter lets us know what he's been doing. Uh, this nourishing our soul on the true grace, it's what Peter's done for us in this letter, week after week. And it happens afresh every time we come back and we read this letter. Our soul is nourished again on God's grace. Peter himself, the author, remember the one who, who boasted so proudly? who failed so stunningly, who was reinstated so tenderly and so completely. He, he knows a thing or two about saving grace, doesn't he? He knows about being born again, as he has used the very phrase more than once 
in this letter. He knows about the power of total dependence upon Christ. And, and so it just comes out of his pores as he writes. And he has all along been nourishing our souls on the true grace of God. Here, as he comes to this summary in verse 12, as he closes, he reveals to us what he has been doing all along in the middle of that verse. I have written to you briefly. Good thing Peter didn't write a long letter or we'd have been in it for years. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. I've translated it nourishing our souls on the true grace of God. But he's been encouraging us, exhorting us that this is true. And then testifying. He's been bearing witness. I myself know these things to be true. He tells these believers, I know them and I can speak them with, 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 uh, with conviction um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as, as an apostle, as a sent one, but, but I also know them experientially. I know them by the conviction of my own heart. This is the true grace of God. He has argued this from his own life, from the words of the Savior. All this true grace is found only in Christ. And all that he has done in this letter is to encourage these beleaguered believers who will suffer for a little while. And then they'll go home. What is it then, if you might indulge me, that he has argued for us, that he has revealed for us in this little letter about God's saving grace? So let me give you a very quick recitation. Here is what he's revealed for us. That grace teaches us, and this is in order, about our living hope that can never be taken away, chapter 1, and that it is the fear of the Lord that gives life. Grace teaches us how to love other believers. Grace teaches us how to live like this is not our home and how to submit to men for the sake of God. Grace teaches us, going on in chapter 2, a fearlessness even in suffering and a humility even in leading, chapter 3. Grace teaches us to give a blessing for an insult, how to be eager to do good even under duress, and how to arm ourselves for godly suffering, chapter 4. Grace teaches us that courageous clarity is needed for prayer. Grace teaches us how to rejoice at suffering and how to anticipate a greater exaltation when he appears. Grace teaches us to choose to be shepherded and how to thwart the assaults of the enemy, chapter 5. Grace teaches us that our Father's dominion will never fail. Well, there it is in a nutshell all about what grace does and what the true grace of God is. And so as he says here, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Well, what is the this? Is it this that he just said? I don't know, back in, in verse 10 when he mentioned the God of all grace. Is it that grace? Yeah, but that doesn't exactly fit. Is it the grace that he mentioned just a few verses before? Well, yeah, that's a piece of it. It's the this that's all of this letter. It's the true grace, so stand in it. Stand firm in it, he says. Never relinquish, brothers and sisters, gospel grace. Never relinquish gospel grace. You say, well, of course, I, I would never do that. I mean, I love the idea that God, who is holy and perfect, is condescended to accept me 
has come to die and suffer for me when I betrayed him, when, when I committed treason, when I hated him and was his, when he was his enemy. Even then, in that day, when we were enemies, he loved us enough to send Christ to die for us. So I would, I would never want to, want to relinquish, to let go of my grip on gospel grace. And yet we're tempted to do it. There are subtle ways that we can undermine it by living out of our own performance, by making our own gods, by finding our own gospels of our own salvation, rather than just casting ourselves upon him. Never relinquish gospel grace. The gospel of rescuing sovereign grace is the, is the only rescue for our souls, whatever our trouble is. It's the only explanation that can make right our understanding of a world when we become confused. John Piper, uh, in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, and yes, I have in my office a book whose title in big letters on the front says, Money, Sex, and Power. You're like, wow, okay. I highly recommend that book. Piper says this uh, near the beginning of that little work. God created the world for his glory. He references some scripture to that end. And then Piper goes on. God created the world so that he would be magnified by the way his creatures find their greatest satisfaction in him. That's what he designed in the garden. And in the garden, it was easy. Piper says, but money, sex, and power... Sorry, he says, money, sex, and power exist ultimately to show that God is more to be desired than money, sex, or power. That is, paradoxically, how they become most satisfying in themselves. In other words, when they become vehicles to demonstrate that he is satisfying, they themselves fit their right role of satisfaction. Any other role they would take is destructive. And here's the point I'm wanting to get to. All of this, he says was ruined by the fall, by the first great folly of exchanging God for other things. God then is restored as the supreme value of the human heart. Money, sex, and power then begin to find their God-glorifying place in our life. Everything then hangs on what we value as supreme. And the burden of the rest of that little book is to go on and demonstrate that it is the gospel of grace that restores God to the rightful place of supreme value in our lives. It is the gospel of grace that restores God to the rightful place of supreme value in our lives. And when we have that, then everything else just takes up its orbit around God and his glory. Another example, if you care, just to show that we haven't gone too far afield with this idea of the importance of gospel grace and how everything underlies it. Another example is found right here in Peter's little letter. Flip back with me, if you would, to the beginning of chapter 2. And let's look at a couple of the verses there. Chapter 2, starting verse 1, Peter has already told us, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if indeed you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. How do we overcome this laundry list of vices? How do we overcome this recitation of miseries? By the way, is there anything fun in these sins? I find that interesting. Who finds these fun? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I mean, there are other sins that are at least more fun. These aren't even enjoyable. 
What does Peter say that we are to do? Would you like to escape those? Would I like to be able to fight successfully the battle against those things that war in my own flesh and against my own soul for my own destruction? He says that the battle of overcoming is a battle of longing. It's a battle of affection. It's a battle of desiring. You, you can't fight against a desire with a list of rules. You can't fight a lust with a law. What you can fight a desire with is with a greater desire. And it is the gospel of grace that places God in the position of supreme value in our lives. When we see that he alone satisfies that now everything else begins to be able to take its rightful spot. And that's exactly what Peter says. Put aside all these things, how? Verse 2, like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the word. I would say that's the milk of the word. It's the milk of truth. It's the milk of the gospel. The gospel grace that he is trumpeting throughout this entire book. And how can we long for it? Well, verse 3 tells us, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. If you know grace, then you've tasted this goodness. If the gospel has set you free, then you've tasted it, at least at some point. No matter how confused you are today, no matter how, how you may this week have kicked yourself and said, I can't believe I fell for that. I can't believe I lusted for that. I acted that way. I was greedy this way. I was selfish. I was what? I can't believe it. Well, take heart. If you've tasted it, then that desire has been implanted in you by the Spirit, and the Spirit can renew that desire. So going back to that longing created by that taste is the seeds for all of the fight against this laundry list. Praise God for that. Never relinquish the gospel of grace. We never outgrow that gospel. We never outgrow grace. It is only the gospel of grace that can open our mouths to give genuine praise. Oh, I can be commanded to praise. I can, I can play the part of praising. I can, I can come to church and sing so it looks good. But it's only the gospel of grace that can make me exult from from my, from my innermost being, right? It's only the gospel of sovereign grace that helps us sing out of all enjoyment and out of all satisfaction. It's only the gospel of sovereign grace that holds the power to expose the evil of our hearts for the destruction that they really are. And only the gospel of sovereign grace that can enthrall us with the glories of a king who's been unbelievably merciful to us. Never relinquish gospel grace. This is why critical theory will never work in this generation. Whether it's critical race theory or critical anything else theory. You know what the problem with critical race theory is? It's not the race part. It's the critical theory part. Because there's critical everything under the sun theory. Critical theory has been around for centuries. And today is not the day to talk about the nature of critical theory. And if I was going to, I would have had to have done a lot more homework and I'd need to bring a few other people up here to help me do it because I couldn't. But I know enough to know I've heard of it from years past and I get it. 
Critical theory will never move the needle of indwelling racism, never. It can't touch the human heart. Or any other degradation of soul, for that matter. Or any other human philosophy be able to fight on our side as an ally against the scourge of sin in our lives. Only the gospel of grace can do that. And the gospel of sovereign grace is under attack today by so many things, by man-made religion of every human heart. Not, not just the big religions that actually have names that you can check off a box, you know, but the, the personal religions that every human being is prone to make. Well, if I do this, then I'm good. Here's my list for this week, and I've done that, so I'm good. The gospel of sovereign grace is under attack by every self-help, inner goodness theory that sells books and magazines and airtimes. Airtime. The gospel of sovereign grace is under attack by human pride that refuses to look to the Lord for understanding of our own souls and for help to do something about it when we find our need. And what I love about this little letter of Peter, going back to these closing verses, is what Peter does with this, this ocean of grace, this waterfall cascading down over us, when he gets to the end, does he say, look, grace has done it all, so now, you know, just rest, right? Well, there is a rest. There is a rest of soul. There is peace in our spirit. In fact, that'll be his, his closing words. It was, by the way, his opening word, peace to you, and it'll be his closing word, peace to you, because only grace can give rest. But that's not the command he gives. I've written to you briefly, 12, exhorting and testifying that this is the grace, the true grace of God. Stand firm in it because grace makes us vigilant. True grace doesn't make us indigent. Real grace makes us fight to keep it. We aren't saved by our keeping, but we experience all the benefits of our saving by the fight of our keeping. Grace rouses us to fight for what we hold dear. By grace, we are chosen in Christ. That's what Peter has told them. That's what the scripture tells us. And we yet stand firm in grace to cherish what's been entrusted to us. Salvation, all entirely his doing. But our growth, our sanctification, our experience of grace, very much part and parcel with our fight. How are you fighting this week? If you're not fighting well, then comrade, a good chance to redouble your efforts and say, you know what, everything I want is found in him and nourishing my soul in the true grace of God. So says this postcard from Babylon. So that is the summary that Peter gives us in verse 12. Now Peter gives a greeting and a final exhortation, and it's this, take courage from your comrades as you are deployed in enemy territory. Take courage from your comrades as you are deployed in enemy territory. 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. She who is in Babylon. Does Peter write from the ancient city of Babylon? No. Almost all ancient... Uh, historians are in agreement that at this point in time, Babylon is barely a smudge on the map. And, and we have no record whatsoever of uh, Peter traveling there. Since the opening words of this letter, Peter has been 
speaking to these believers as the new Israel. He, he gives the church, these believers to whom he writes, he gives them the same titles that are given to Israel in the Old Testament in chapter 2, verse 9. And he says that this church is the new people of God in chapter 2, verse 10. And the theme of scattered exiles, which I have repeated often from the opening verse of this letter and which, which trails throughout this letter, began there. It's, it's the same wording and the same idea as the Diaspora Jews that were carried off into exile and dispersed in the Old Testament over the known world by Babylon. Peter started with that idea, chosen exiles scattered, and he closes with the same idea here. She was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, so does my son Mark. Where then is Peter writing from? Answer, Rome. He's writing from Rome. We know from other ancient historians and we know from other biblical documents that we can piece together that Peter was in Rome near the end of his life. And ancient church tradition holds that this is where he would be martyred, crucified upside down in Rome. I believe it's 68 AD, if I'm not mistaken. This is probably a writing from somewhere in the early 60s at this point. And Babylon is a very fitting name. For Rome. Why does he use it? Well, because Rome at that point in world history is currently the center of all world power, just as Babylon was. And Rome at that point in world history is notorious in its opposition to God's people. It's where the Caesar lives. It is the source of all authority to stamp out and persecute Christians everywhere. Rome, it's the Babylon of the ancient world. Some have said, as we find in some other places in Scripture, that, that Peter here may use the term Babylon rather than Rome for the sake of the protection of the believers who are there in Rome. Maybe, but I don't, I don't even think Peter needs to do it at this point. Uh, I, I think... Rome knows that there's believers there, and I don't think the sending of this letter is going to out them in some new way. Oh my goodness, we found a letter. Caesar, I think there are Christians in Rome. No, I think he's using it because he's closing with the same theme that he began with. And what's the point of this naming of Babylon? It's that Peter writes as one who is in enemy territory to those who themselves are also deployed in enemy territory, and he tells them to take courage from their comrades. First, take courage from those comrades who are far. She who is in Babylon greets you. Well, who is the she? Well, as I've already uh, hinted, I believe it's the church in Rome. Many good reasons for that, but I don't think it's controversial. Peter is writing and he's saying, those believers among whom I am ministering and with whom I am fellowshipping, I send this letter to you from all of them. You know, Scripture says that, it's, that, that good news from a distant land is like cool water to the soul, right? Do, do, do you ever get letters from an old friend? I mean the kind that come in the mail and they're paper and there's stamps on them. Do you ever get any of those? If you do, man, those are those are... Those are special, aren't they? Peter here says, hey, 
we who are in Rome, we're thinking of you. We know of you. We're praying for you as we send this letter. Our prayers and our love go with it. She who is in Babylon greets you as the bride of Christ in that city. We're mindful of you. So take courage. Your comrades back here are in the fight and in prayer and remembering you. You have faithful brothers and sisters today all around the world. Even as we reminded ourselves last week, and I won't rehash that because in two consecutive passages, Peter has brought up this encouragement. I think it's very important. But not just individuals, but there are entire churches who are faithful, and there are comrades in the faith today deployed in enemy territory, churches in Sucre, Bolivia, and in Bahrain, churches in Dubai and Hawassa, Ethiopia, churches in Kiev, and churches in Moscow, churches in Moldova and Haiti, and all over the world today, faithful comrades deployed in enemy territory. Take courage because of these brothers and sisters in faith today and the battles that they fight. And as the Lord brings them to mind, pray for them. Have we not been reminded often in the last couple of weeks? But pray. So there's she, in verse 13, who sends greeting. And, and then there's Mark. This is uh, John Mark, by the way. John Mark, who went on uh, the first missionary journey together with Paul. Same guy. John Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas and who it seems pretty clearly, pretty clear was mentored by Barnabas himself and who very possibly was led to faith by Peter himself because Peter here says, uh, calls him my son. As Paul calls Timothy my son because he's his son in the faith, so Peter calls Mark that here. We don't know otherwise, but it would be a good indication. Regardless, Mark holds a very special place in Peter's heart. He's obviously ministered to him. Oh, yeah, by the way, one other tiny little thing. Uh, this is the same dude who wrote that gospel that bears his name, Mark. In fact, scholars' uh, best estimate is that Mark wrote the gospel of Mark from Rome in the early 60s. So maybe Mark's working on it right now as Peter's writing this letter. Pretty cool. Mark is another one, by the way, who knows a little bit about failure, and he knows a little bit about grace. Praise God for that. John Mark, who was a young man when Christ was crucified, might have even been the guy at the end of the Gospel of Mark who fled naked when Jesus was arrested. Uh, most scholars think that. They're like, great, I didn't need to know that. But it's only included in Mark's gospel, and the reason I bring it up is because it seems that Mark's point is this is something that only Mark knows, that there was a young man there, and you know what? He fled, and he was in such haste and such fear for his life, he left behind his own clothes to get away. And by the way, that's not the primary failure. It's not even necessarily a failure that I'm speaking of. But see the humility of this man that he knows grace. Take courage from John Mark, whom Paul at one point would tell Barnabas, I don't want to take Mark with us because he did not prove faithful. 
And so on the second missionary journey, Mark didn't go with Paul. But later in his life, Paul would write a letter and he would commend Mark for his faithfulness. John Mark is a man who knows about failure and about grace. Take courage from these comrades in faith. Those ancient ones whom we read about this morning, we could talk about Silvanus, but you get the picture. Those ancient ones and also those now living. Those far away, but also and especially those who are near. And this is where Peter ends. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is, um, this is not something that you can do with the ancient children of faith. You can't greet them. You can't embrace them. But we regularly need this, and we regularly need to do this for one another. Have not the last two years taught us that, if nothing else? How much we need one another. How much we need those living among us. And we need to express the same affection and the same acceptance. Greet one another with a kiss. A lot of smooching after church today, right? This is a common custom in other cultures, right? It's not an American gig. But in other cultures, a peck on the cheek typically male to male and female to female, although at times it may cross the sexes. It's not a romantic expression. It's, it's a demonstration of hello and welcome. It's a greeting. And yet, what does Peter call it here? A kiss of love. He adds just a little bit more to it. Give one another a, a loving greeting. So however you do it, maybe you shake hands, maybe you high five, maybe you, you have a cool little hello dance, I don't know. But when we greet one another as believers, we get to express in a, in a tiny little way the acceptance that we have with God through Christ. We get to express that acceptance with one another. You know, in the ancient church, before they would take communion, uh, they would do this thing called the passing of the peace. In fact, we'd, we did it this morning, although we didn't use those words, and we did it in a very modern and contemporary way, so much so that you didn't even know what it was. We said, hey, say hi to somebody. Do you know the passing of the peace in the ancient church was meant to be the opportunity right before the body of Christ took communion for men and women to do business if there was anybody that they were at odds with, anybody that they needed to reconcile with. It was an opportunity to demonstrate um, a, a, a unilateral acceptance and affection towards somebody else. Now, it's not in the Bible that you have to do that way or anything like that, but man, it's a good reminder, isn't it? And greeting one another with a kiss of love is a beautifully important way that we just demonstrate to one another, I see you, you matter, you're accepted, you're welcome, you're, you're part of us. Now, only the Lord knows who's saved and who's not. But we reach out to one another in such, in such a way as would glorify Christ. Sincerity in our welcome. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this little letter holds for us the true grace of God. And it calls us to do impossible things, not hard things, impossible things. 
But the Spirit of God in us, by his grace, can do these things in us, like giving a blessing for an insult. What a community our God has put together. How smart he is, how wise he is, through all generations, down through history, to create a community that we all need. May the, may the Lord help us. May we grow in it. May we stand firm. May we greet one another with genuineness. Let's see some hearty hugs after church today. And peace and wholeness be to you all who are in Christ. Stand with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your mercy towards us in Christ, and we thank you, Lord, that though you are holy, you have made us accepted in your Son. We, we claim no other righteousness. I'm not good enough. I couldn't even try to be. I don't even want to try to be. Ah, but Lord Jesus, you have obeyed where I have disobeyed. You have been faithful when I've been, where I've been faithless. You have kept the law perfectly and honored your Father and died in my place and taken his wrath upon yourself and by transaction, Holy Spirit, that you have made possible by faith. You've opened my eyes and given me new birth and given me all the righteousness of the Son as he has taken on all my sin. I thank you. And so this true grace of God, Lord, let us stand in it this week and not be drawn away, not be duped, not be deceived to think that other things will satisfy us. Lord, our God, retake that supreme place, that supreme value in our lives so that everything else might orbit around who you are in your glory. And Lord, help us this week to greet one another with sincerity and willingness and welcome. We thank you for it and we praise you. All to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.